0: Recently, a friend of mine sent me a Huffington Post article called This is What No One Tells You About Being Asian in America in 2021. It's by Sharon Kwan, who's a psychotherapist, and she specializes in working with the Asian American, BIPOC, and immigrant populations who are struggling with racial trauma and identity. So once I read the article and I saw different things within it, like the fact that We are used to minimizing our own pain because we don't want to rock the boat. Or if you've ever been asked that question of where are you really from, I knew I wanted to talk to her. She's the first therapist that I brought onto the show and I'm really excited because I think that as an Asian American, you deal with very unique issues and because seeking out help is not something that's very common, it can be a really difficult conversation to have to even know where to start. So I asked her a bit about her story, how she became a therapist, how she's passionate about this work. And I think if you are someone who was a parentified child in that you were expected to be an adult earlier than you were, you know, mentally prepared or emotionally prepared to be, or you've experienced enmeshment, so that collective feeling, I asked her, you know, what's the predominant thing that she sees with Asian Americans who come to work with her. And she says that we all have this deep, deep sense of guilt. So if any of this sounds familiar to you, then I hope that you will get a lot out of the interview today. And I look forward to hearing what you think. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Hello and welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face Podcast, where we are breaking through Taboo topics and talking about mental and emotional health, which is why I'm so excited to have Sharon Kwan today here. She's a therapist and a social worker. And so she's the first therapist that I brought onto the show. And being a mental health advocate, I've definitely partaken in my own years and years of therapy and <laughs> worked in different iterations for different reasons from anxiety and depression to my eating disorder to postpartum depression. So I think it's so valuable. And to have someone who culturally identifies as Asian, I think is so unique too, because that's, that wasn't my experience when I was seeing therapists, they were all white women for the most part. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to Sharon because I want her to explain her story a bit and how she culturally identifies, as well as the fact that she's written two Huffington Post articles that have been very well received. So I'll ask her a bit about that, but I'm just going to turn it over really quickly to you for you to introduce yourself. Hi,
1: thank you so much for having me. So my name is Sharon, and I am a therapist and social worker, and I work mostly with people of color, specifically Asian Americans, Latinx Americans, and a lot of immigrant populations. And you know, most of my clients struggle with things like assimilation, family conflict, differentiating from family, and just really those that are struggling with setting those boundaries and living their authentic lives. So that's kind of my forte and who I like to work with the most.
0: That's awesome. And where are you located? I'm based in Los Angeles. Awesome. And can you tell me how you culturally identify?
1: I'm Korean American, first generation. I immigrated to the States when I was three years old. And for the most part, I kind of just stuck to life in America. I didn't go back until I was in my 20s. So there was a lot of, you know, forced assimilation and things Mm. like that, that I had to go through and eventually unpack. But right now I feel very, you know, in the mix of both cultures and I Mm. go back to Korea at least once a year and all of my family's there. So I have a pretty close tie with my culture.
0: That's incredible. And how, because, you know, I think that growing up, mental and emotional health, especially going to see a therapist and talking to someone about it was not... At the forefront of anybody's understanding. When I was in my 20s, I went to go live in Shanghai, China, and one of my friends started a blog and she married the co founder of the site. And so she had offered, you know, do you want me to tell him about your blog and have it featured on the site? So it was, and all of a sudden I started getting like, thousands of people reading it a day who are all Asian American. And a lot of times their feedback to me was, I wish that I could go seek therapy. I wish that I could talk about these feelings that I have. I don't have anybody to talk about it with. So you're the closest thing that I've seen anybody express. So I'm curious about how you became passionate about mental health and the audience that you work with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to that. Growing up, the idea of therapy, I mean, I never even thought about it. I feel like I, it's floated in my mind. I think people have told me, oh, you should try talking to a therapist about this. And I, I was always just like, therapists cannot help me. Like, these are not <laughs> problems that they can solve. Like a white person would never understand what I'm going through. And also the stigma. There's mm-hmm. so much stigma around it. And I think, especially for my family, we're very closed off and enmeshed. And so, the idea of talking about our issues to somebody else outside of us just felt like it would be a betrayal.
0: Mm. And
1: the guilt of all of that, just that was so overwhelming that I couldn't even fathom. But eventually, I did hit like my rock bottom, especially dealing with my family. And that was when I decided that I really needed some help. And I needed to find a Korean American therapist who understood what it was like living biculturally, you know, having the Korean aspect, but also living in America. And, you know, especially when your parents aren't from America, and they're not like acculturating or adjusting as the same speed or in the same amount as you, it, it creates a clash of ideologies. And so that's when I decided that I should really seek some
0: outside help. Mm. And then how did you become a therapist? And what was that like for your family, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, so my first session, I was just I've, so I've always liked helping people. And I'm, I feel like I'm one of those people that people just like to tell me things, you know, strangers often tell me <laughs> darkest, deepest secret. And I'm always just like, why? Um, <laughs> but so I, I, I figure that I must be approachable in some way, or I, I think people are comfortable opening up with me. And I've always wanted to be like maybe a school counselor, I always thought that I was good at, you know, kind of guiding people helping them in that aspect. And so when I had my first session with my therapist, I was just like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is this is, you know, it's, pretty casual. We're just talking about life. Like, I think that this is something that I could do as well. And so right off the bat, that's kind of when I knew, like, oh, I think that this is what I can do or what I want to be doing with my life. And because at the time, I was kind of floating in between living in America, also going back to Korea often. And I didn't really have that much stability and that much direction. I was managing social media at the time and working remotely, and so that allowed me to travel and do a lot of different things and explore, but in terms of like future, like passion, purpose, I didn't really have one. And so I think the timing of all of that was really helpful in helping me figure that out, but yeah, just just that first session and me talking about The schools that I wanted to go to, my therapist kind of, she uh, called me out right away because the school that I had chosen was all the way in Amsterdam. Mm. And she was just like, why do you want to go to Amsterdam? And at the time, I was just like, oh, you know, I mean, the school is interesting. Um, I love adventure. She's like, well, like, what's there for you? Like, Mm. I mean, you know, new adventure? I don't know. And... (laughs) she was just like oh it sounds like you're running away and you know it was spot on and i feel like everyone else close in my life knew that as well but wasn't something that they could really call out or like judge me on and it's Mm -hmm. not like she judged me on it but it was very objective just like you're running away let's figure out why and so we began to unpack that and I told her I want to work with Asian Americans. Um, in you know LA, there's plenty of Asian Americans who are struggling with acculturating and adjusting. And so that kind of, and I'm from here and it just always felt like, you know, home and somewhere that I want to end up. But because my parents are here, it was something that I really avoided. They're very Christian. My dad is a pastor. And so I just spent my life running away from all of that and the idea of even being in the same city, the guilt of not going to church when I mm. could, that was pretty overwhelming. And so that was something that I definitely wanted to avoid. And yeah, she was just like, you know, well, if you go to school in Amsterdam and you want to end up working here, like the tr- mm. credits aren't going to be easily transferred. Like it's not going to be direct. Like you're kind of making these this a lot harder for yourself. And that's when I realized like, yeah, that's what I've been doing my entire life, making things so much harder than they had to be. Like, instead of just going the straight route, I would just be going like zigzag, like all over the place. And, you know, just to keep avoiding these failings that I've had for most of my life. So yeah, that was a breaking point for me and just a period of, wow, I need to just do what is best for me without thinking about, you know, my family and all of these obligations.
0: Do they have a response when you became a therapist?
1: So my mom, she actually encouraged me to do this. She studied Mm. uh, Christian Christian counseling um, uh, on on her spare time, and so she kind of felt called to that as well. And so she was very supportive of that. My dad, I mean, he was just like, "What's wrong? Like, why do you think there's something wrong with you? You're fine. Like, you don't need therapy." Uh, oh, but, yes. <laughs> but in the end, I mean, they're they're. I think they're happy for me that I found something that I feel so passionate about. And, mm. you know, it's a helping profession. And I, I tell them that, you know, I think that I'm doing God's work. And mm. so, you know, I feel like this is kind of my way of continuing that, continuing to live those values that they instilled upon me,
0: but mm. in my own way. Mm, I love that when because of the work that you do in the specific populations that you work with what do you find are common challenges or issues specific to asian americans especially when they want to come into therapy
1: the number one thing is guilt mm. asians are so guilty mm. they have so much guilt over so many things that are out of their control and out of their power mm. and that's truly like the number one thing i feel like i am i'm working with my clients on every day just how to manage that guilt and when to recognize, you know, what, like, is that guilt serving you? I feel like guilt, it's there for a reason. It's there to kind of be like a moral compass, you know, tell you when you did did something wrong, tell you when you did something that you shouldn't have done. But then there's guilt of like, but did you actually do
0: something wrong? Mm, that's a good differentiation.
1: Right. And so I, I often point that out, like, okay, I see, I see why you're feeling this way, but what did you actually do wrong here?
0: Well, where do you think the guilt comes from? Like, why is it that so many Asians and Asian Americans feel that guilt? I mean, I can totally raise my hand and be like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. But where does it come from?
1: I think it's because we're so collective. Mm. You know, we're so our family values are so strong. And I think it's growing up feeling like, I mean, as an immigrant and having parents that, you know, they started from the bottom and growing up, just watching how hard they worked. My mom, I mean, she was basically the sole provider. She worked as a nurse her entire life. All she ever wanted was for me to go to church. That's the Mm. one thing. She didn't ask for anything else. (laughs) And so the fact that I couldn't give her that when she worked so hard, you know, she supported us and supported me through college, like gave me this life. And the fact that I couldn't just give her that one thing, just go to church on Sundays, it ate me apart. It was just like, why can't I do this for you? I really wish I could, but I just don't feel it in my heart. Mm. Um, So I think that's a lot of just those pressures.
0: Mm. And how do you reconcile? Because I used to say this a lot that, you know, being Asian and from that collectivist culture, then growing up in the U.S. and, you know, learning individuation and like your pursue your goals and like whatever makes you happy. And I felt like those were always at odds with each other. And in order to survive and thrive in certain environments, academically or socially, you have to figure out how to navigate these often what it seemed like extremes. So what have you experienced or, you know, in the work that you do with your clients, what has been some helpful tool or just even better understanding that?
1: I mean, yeah, this comes up so often, you know, differentiating from family. I think that that's super hard for a lot of immigrants, specifically Asian Americans. And one thing is setting boundaries, you know, Mm -hmm. recognizing that you're really only responsible for your own happiness. It would be so great if we can press a magic button and make everyone around us happy. Like, how awesome would that be? But that's just not the case. And so, to spend your whole life trying to make, you know, your parents happy, to make your family happy, and sacrifice your own happiness for that—I mean, honestly, I just think that it ends up being a lost cause. And at the end of the day, when all is said and done, you're the one that's going to be unhappy.
0: Mm. Oh, and I felt like growing up, I met so many friends who, I mean. I think I was built differently and I was always just rebellious by nature, rebellious, quote unquote, like (laughs) it's a very mild form of rebellion, I think, but at least I just wanted to do whatever I was going to do. And I don't think I was built to do what someone else told me to do. And yet a lot of my fellow Asian American friends did exactly do what their parents told them to do. They went to the schools that they wanted, the parents wanted them to go to, they went and pursued the careers. And, you know, I, till I was in my thirties living in San Diego, had a friend who didn't tell her parents that, you know, she's a full on doctor and like didn't tell her parents that she had a white boyfriend, that they were living together, that they bought a house together. And it always broke my heart to feel like, oh, like how devastating that was to feel. Not only are you not accepted, but you have to basically live a false life for your parents. Do you feel like, you know, that's a common experience for a lot of Asian Americans and any thoughts on that? (laughs)
1: definitely I mean I also I feel like I used to wear many different faces and I'm only just now getting to a point where I can kind of have one identity that I can you that I can present to everybody instead of you know me as the friend me as the daughter me as a sister me as a therapist instead I'm finally just kind of thinking oh this is just me I'm just Sharon, mm-hmm. and you know I have tons of tons of clients who live a life just hiding parts of themselves to their families. I mean, for me, I, I have a bunch of tattoos. I didn't show them to my parents until I was like 27, 28. Mm-hmm. I would always cover them up because I was terrified that they were going to, uh, I mean, cry or, you know, mm-hmm. hate me or like, you know, just there's a lot of shame and guilt around it, you know, on, on just like my body. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like, I couldn't even just be myself around the two people that gave me life and are supposed to love me no matter what really fucked with me and mm. really just made me feel like, oh, I, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not lovable. Like, you know, all of these negative core beliefs that come with feeling like you just can't be your authentic self because, you know, the other person's not going to accept you or they're not going to like you
0: as much. Hmm. I have a question about that too. This idea that your parents are supposed to love you. I feel like that's such a, Well, I know that like innately, you need like that love and attention from your parents in order to survive and thrive. Like we as human beings, when we're born out of the womb, like we just are non-functional unless someone else is taking care of us. So that totally makes sense. And I understand, you know, all the studies that have been done about how important emotional connection is and all of that to thrive. But that idea that your parents are supposed to love you, is that like an innate inherent idea or is that a very Western idea that we've tried to transpose on Asian cultures?
1: I... I think that it's an innate idea. I just think that Asian families, it manifests differently. It doesn't look Mm. the same as white people, you know, Mm. how we show our love. I feel like for a lot of us, it's through financial means. It's through a very concrete, like, you know, provide a house, provide food, provide resources, provide an education, all of these like very logical things that, you know, are given and that a lot of our parents didn't even have, you know, growing up and, you know, in the countries that they came from. And so I think to them, like providing those things is a way of, you know, showing their love and showing how much they care that this is how much I'm willing to all the stuff that I'm willing to do for you so that you can have a better life. But I think that a lot of that comes from just them giving what they wanted, you know, growing Mm -hmm. up. And then I, for us, like for, like for me, my generation, it's more of like, well, that's all great. Like it's all necessary, but you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs after you have, you know, your basic needs met, then you start needing the emotional needs, the social needs, all those things that are necessary to self-actualize and, you know, be your authentic self and like live the life of purpose. And uh, because I didn't have the emotional and social aspect That was the part that was really dragging me down and preventing me from, you know, finding my purpose and living Mm -hmm. my best life. But I think that, you know, a lot of that I hope is changing. And I think, you know, with like, I for sure have learned that, you know, these are the things that I want to provide for my children when I have have them, you know, and again, it just kind of goes into providing what you didn't get growing up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us about the two Huffington Post articles that you wrote about and what inspired you to write them?
1: Sure. So the first one that I wrote was, uh, this is what no one tells you about being Asian in America in 2021. And this was inspired by, uh, you know, the rise of you know, the anti-Asian violence in the past year. And just me feeling like so I don't really have that many Asian friends. And I think that a lot of this comes from just me growing up in the church and feeling like all Asians are judgmental Christians and just not being, just not wanting to be anywhere near them. So that was really big for me as a big source of trauma. And so I just like pushed that away from me as far as I could. And I really clung to my proximity to whiteness and Mm try to align myself with that so that I can just prove to the world that, you know, I'm not one of them. And so, you know... I ended up not having that many Asian friends growing up. And as all of these things have come to light and as I'm working with Asian clients and helping them process a lot of this racial trauma and identity issues, I started feeling like, man, like why don't I have anyone that I can talk to about you know my problems or like how I feel about being Asian that's you know not my therapist or you know not my colleagues? Why don't I have anyone like any friends that I can just shoot the shit about, like just you know, talking about what it's like being Asian? And it bummed me out and it made me do some some deep reflection on like my how I kind of perpetuate the model minority myth and, and how I play into that. And so that inspired me to really write the first article as a kind of to sh- highlight, you know, why why we feel this way, why we feel like we're constantly minimizing ourselves and our racial trauma. I think I just kind of wanted to get these feelings out. And once I did, it was amazing because so many people reached out and said that they've been feeling this too. And I felt so validated. And I was like, wow, this is what it would have been like if I had more Asian friends. Um, (laughs) I got what I asked for by writing it. So that, that was a really special feeling. And then this most recent one that I just got published today is I hated myself for not being white for most of my life. And here's how I stopped. And this is kind of a kind of a continuation on on the first article and just the internalized racism that I really harbored growing up and feeling like this is what I need to do to survive. This is what I need to do to make it here. I just need to be as white as possible and reject all of the parts of myself that just doesn't fit this white mold. And so I ended, I was the Asian that was like making fun of other Asians, like so much self hating, mm-hmm. and all of this to really just hide this part of myself. And really, you know, to the point where I would just I prayed that like, nobody would notice. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's like, <laughs> I am Asian, like, mm-hmm. as much as I try to be something else, at the end of the mm-hmm. day, like, my skin, how I look, like all of these things are, you know, it's like, a, we stick out like a sore thumb. Like, mm-hmm. and so it took a lot of you know, I it really helped when I went back to Korea that mm. I think was a game changer for me because I hadn't gone back to Korea since I came when I was three. Mm. And like we never visited, um, even though my entire family's over there. Only my mom, my dad and my brother are in the States and then mm. everybody else is in Korea. And so I just kind of felt called to go back. And what I did, like both my parents are from huge families. And so I had tons of aunts and uncles and cousins and my grandmothers to greet me. And I just felt so accepted. And so like at home where, you know, everybody looked like me. We share the same culture. We eat the same food. I don't have to be ashamed of myself. I can just eat kimchi out in public. I don't have to worry (laughs) about my breath. I don't have to like all of these things that I I was so hyper aware and hyper vigilant of growing up in the States you know, not offending white people or like, not, you know, making them feel uncomfortable. So yeah, I think that that was incredibly helpful and really made me feel at home and made me feel so like accepted and loved. And so when I came back after that, it was like, I was, I got a second chance of immigrating again, except I got Mm. to do it on my terms. And instead of just forcing myself to assimilate, I discovered that there's another route. We don't have to completely assimilate. There are still ways to be, you know, both Korean and American. It doesn't have to, you don't have to just be one or the other. So ever since then, I've been much more just proud of being Korean American. Mm-hmm. I think in the past, like that question, where are you from? I oh, hate yeah. that so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, I feel like it's super triggering for like all Asians, because you, you know what they're getting at. Yeah, they really want to ask is, what are you? Mm -hmm. And so in the past, that might have been triggering and really annoying. But I think now I proudly say, you know, I'm Korean American, because, you know, this is what America is. We're not just a bunch of white people. We are, I mean, it's supposed to be a melting pot of cultures. And, you know, there's so much diversity here. And so yeah, I try not to um, filter myself to appeal to the white lens anymore. And I kind of just see myself from my own lens.
0: I love that. I think that internalized racism, you know, a lot of these terms, I didn't realize growing up or like microaggressions, all of those things. It wasn't until recently that those started coming to the forefront and then realizing like, oh, yeah, that's what my experience has been like. And so I really appreciate that you've been giving people the words that they need to express a lot of these feelings that they didn't know they had, or like how to pinpoint that. Um, I was recently listening to this, uh, book speak Okinawa. And so the way that she described her experience, there were so many moments where I'm like, Oh my God, she's putting into words the things that I felt that I didn't even know I was feeling. So I think that that's such a validating experience for so many people reading your pieces. Before we jumped onto this, we had touched base before, and you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about a fawning response. Can you explain like what that is?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, so I wrote about this a little bit more in my recent piece. And so fawning, that's one of the trauma responses, like flight, fight, or freeze. And fawning, that's when you diffuse conflict by people-pleasing, Mm. Um, you know you don't want to make other people uncomfortable so instead you just stay quiet or you laugh along or you know you just appease to what other people what the majority is doing and I feel like that describes Asians so well oh yeah (laughs) we (laughs) like we've been fighting our entire lives uh, not just to white people but to our parents Mm -hmm. and so it's it's a trauma response that I'm very familiar with. And that's something that I talk about a lot because I want to raise more awareness that this is what we're doing. And mm. I think that the first step in really overcoming something is to just even know that you know there, that there's a oh, problem. Yeah. You know, self-awareness is so key in therapy and in life. You know, If you don't know that you're doing something or you, if you don't know that there's an issue, then how are you ever gonna overcome it?
0: So- That's amazing. The, I think that that idea of, When you just said that that laughing response, I'm like, oh my God, I just like flashback to a thousand different moments in easy recollection of how many times I've laughed out of discomfort or trying to appease the situation and how that just feels like a violation of self or you know, it's putting yourself down. There's so many, I think, ripple effects that happen and over the long term that really wears on you, like it wears on your psyche. It's everything. So thank you so much for pointing that out. As we're getting ready to close this interview, I wanted to ask you if you had one thing that you could say about fuck saving face and breaking through taboos and, you know, really highlighting something that you wish people would know, what would that be?
1: So I would say, you know, don't give a fuck. I even have that tattooed on the bot on my lip on the bottom.
0: That's so amazing. My friend has a tattoo in the same area on the bottom of his lip, and he said it was he's tatted all up everywhere. And he said that was the most painful tattoo that he'd ever gotten. He's like, I feel like the tattoo gun was going into my chin. So very impressive that you did that. Yeah, I
1: mean, I love getting tattoos, but it felt like being at the dentist, which I hate, and so yeah, it was very <laughs> painful. But I, I live by this motto: like, don't give a fuck. Like, why? Mm-hmm. I just don't think that you should have to compromise your sense of self and compromise any part of you to, you know, satisfy other people or to make yourself, you know, appeal to others. Because at the end of the day, those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind.
0: Mm, That's a really good adage to remember. I think it takes a lot of practice and trust to get to that point, too, of, you know, in any sort of relationship, whether it's intimate partnership or a friendship or whatnot, just being able to show up as fully yourself and then be fully accepted. It's such a wonderful feeling to actually experience that kind of unconditional love, because I think in a lot of Asian households, it's a very conditional love Mm -hmm. that you get it's you perform and then you get validation and you perform and you get validation. So I think being able to start understanding, well, that doesn't have to be the dynamic that we all live by and there can be something else and we're all imperfect as humans. So we'll all make mistakes, but I think leaning into that a little bit more is just such a wonderful reminder. If people want to follow up with you and they, you know, I would highly recommend anybody who wants to explore mental and emotional health and therapy to, seek you out as a resource or seek other therapists who really speak to you. I think that what you said when you wanted to embark on therapy in the beginning of finding someone who understood your cultural background, that that was important. I didn't even know that that was an option in the beginning, going to seek therapy. I just went to therapy and just, you know, found whoever I could. And so one of the future interviews that we're launching, as well as to be your own medical advocate and to really be able to no, you know, like you have the right to ask for what it is that you need and what it is that you're looking for. So, how can people follow up with you and find you?
1: So, you can follow up with me at my website Sharon dot com, um, or you can also check out yellowchaircollective. dot com. That is the group practice that I work at, and we serve you know, AAPI folks, Latinx, like immigrants, um, all sorts of people. And there we have a lot of Asian American therapists from all different backgrounds, specializing in, you know, everything from teens to pregnancy to, uh, you know, we have a whole spectrum of populations that we serve. And so we have a few support groups happening right now um, for those who want to process the Asian American experience. So yeah, there's lots of things that we're, we're offering to our community. So I think that that, that would be a great resource to check out.
0: That's wonderful. And people can participate remotely. They don't have to be in LA.
1: For the groups, they can be anywhere, but for therapy, you have to be based in California.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope that everybody gets a lot out of it and like was nodding their heads and smiling and laughing to themselves and being able to recognize themselves in your story and your sharing. Thank you. I am so passionate about mental and emotional health because I know the shame and the stigma and the guilt and just the trauma that so many of us hold. And the reason that I'm really passionate about it is because I believe that hurt people hurt people. So in order to truly change the world and make it a healthier, more enjoyable existence for ourselves and for everyone around us, then therapy, seeking help, seeking support is one of the ways to get there. If you enjoyed this interview, please do share it with someone in your life. And if you would like to support us, you can go to fucksavingface.com or patreon.com forward slash fucksavingface. That's FCK in both spaces. And there are places that you can make a donation. So whether it's a one-time donation or a recurring donation, that helps us to continue to get this content out there. I look forward to seeing you on Friday for our mindfulness practice.